0: Hello, my bubblas. It is nice to be here with all of you. Quick reminder, I do this podcast. I write these essays to share a perspective and a voice that you won't find anywhere else in the media. And I know you appreciate that because I get feedback all the time that uh, you appreciate an independent voice. I love doing it, uh, but remember, I'm just a guy trying to make it. In the business and uh, I depend on your support to do so. So please, please, please go to leebressler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. It's 10 bucks a month. It's a hundred bucks a year. It's worth it. You can give a subscription as a holiday gift. Uh, it's a great present to give. Uh, so, so thanks for listening. I am uh, a few days further into the COVID journey, and at this point, I'm I'm fine. I mean, I still have a little bit of a stuffy nose. You can probably hear that I'm a little congested. That's not a big deal. I ran four miles yesterday, which was my first sweating since I got COVID. Felt good to be back to exercising. I ran another four uh, four and a quarter miles today. Just going a little stir crazy here. Um you know, I'll share three thoughts on COVID that I've been mulling over. Uh the first is this new wave is going to get everyone and it is going to spread like wildfire. I don't know that it's going to be lethal for the elderly the same way the first wave was. We'll know that in a couple of weeks, but it is going to spread to everyone and the vaccines are not going to make a bit of difference in preventing that. Uh the vaccines are made for the last last year's covid. This is a different thing. Like we're calling them both covid, but they're different things. And people are complacent. Everyone on social media is touting their boosters and it's it's such a it's such a weird thing when people say they are boosted like it's uh, Fast and the Furious and they just got a hit of nitrous to the engine or I, it's just, it's weird. And the entire, I, I think the entire social construct around these shots and people showing them off, it's just gross. Uh, but that, it, it it leads to this arrogance. And now everybody is about to get it. Uh, it like literally everyone you know is going to get it. This is the first time I'm saying that since 2020. But like, if you're an old person you should be extremely cautious over the next couple of weeks and uh see how many people get carried out by this new virus and and then make your new year's plans you know the 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 this is a different thing we keep calling these variants but these this is a different it's a different bug and the vaccines are for the old one so that brings me to my second point which is we're mandating vaccines against yesterday's virus, right? We're, we're forcing everyone to get these shots to protect them, but they're, they're not. That's, that makes it even more outrageous. And it shows how ineffective and incompetent our government health bureaucracy is, right? whether it's New York City, which now has new mandates, whether it's the federal mandates, they're fighting the last war. And they're not keeping up with the evolution of this, which makes me even more outraged by these mandates, by the fact that children are being forced to get injections and medical treatments, often over the objection of their parents, and they're being forced to to get an ineffective treatment, right? No matter whether that that vaccine was 100% effective against what it was meant to protect against, which, by the way, we know it wasn't. But even if it was 100% effective against that, if that virus is not in circulation in a meaningful way anymore, there's no point in getting that vaccine, right? My kids just had this virus. What sense does it make for them to be forced to get an injection now for something that they already had? It's insane. It is incompetent bureaucracy run amok. And that brings me to my third point, which is that I am still outraged at how difficult it was for me to try to get the monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID. Two hospitals, two good hospitals could not make this happen no matter how hard I pushed. Why is that? I think it's because it has become politically unpalatable to discuss any sort of treatment for COVID, even ones that have been proven to work. Somehow the the perception is that, if you if you say that something else will work, then that undermines the vaccines. Now, look in in some cases, it maybe was right. You know, there were a lot of studies on ivermectin, and if if you're not familiar with ivermectin, let's do a a, a quick primer. So, ivermectin is a deworming medication that's been around for a very long time. People get all kinds of illnesses, like picture a tapeworm, for example, right? You get illnesses through dirty water, through I- I- insufficient hygiene. And ivermectin, it's very safe. It's, it's used in people and animals who have worm conditions. It's been used for a very long time. And this doctor in Argentina published a research study uh, about, I don't know, six, seven months ago or so. And now there's some suspicion now that he totally made up the data in that study. But he published this study in which he said that ivermectin healed a huge number of people who had COVID. Now, since then, about 50 more studies have been conducted with varying degrees of success. But what it seems is that ivermectin only helps treat COVID in emerging markets. And the operative theory is that ivermectin treated, let's say, people in Bangladesh who had both a worm and COVID. And so they recovered from the COVID and the ivermectin treated the worms. And then the ivermectin was hailed for treating the COVID. And Scott Alexander, who writes Astral Codex 10, he, he he did an excellent piece breaking this down. I highly recommend you read it. There's a link for it uh, in the Substack. Now that thoroughly convinced me. But before all of this analysis was done, the health bureaucracy and the media in the US mocked anyone who took ivermectin as some sort of a lunatic. Because ivermectin is used in large doses for animals that have a worm condition. It was branded as horse paste and it was used to mock the supposed anti vax MAGA crowd that was supposedly overdosing on it. But it was, that was all made up by the most arrogant and idiotic members of the corporate media. It was really the dumbest part of the culture wars of 2021. But somehow, though, anything that was perceived as a as an alternative to the vaccine pathway was dismissed as as insane, and that by itself, like that that entire process, just makes me question the whole complex that much more. My uh my father died in two thousand one. He was fifty three years old at the time. He'd been sick with cancer, and uh, and his death was horrible. Um, he was first diagnosed with bladder cancer in. October of 1998 he was uh, 50 years old but he had had symptoms for almost 2 years at that point and his urologist had said that he had a chronic bladder infection drink cranberry juice you'll be okay and it wasn't until he got a second opinion in 1998 that the doctor said yeah you you've had cancer for quite some time and he he went through chemo he went through surgery uh, in in the year 2000 the doctors removed his bladder and built him a new one using tissue from his colon. And for a few months it seemed like he was okay. Um and I, I was a mess over the entire thing. Uh this this is around when my drinking and drug use reached their peak. I was a senior in high school and I didn't want to admit it to myself, but I was devastated by it. I was drinking, I was getting high every day. Uh and during the summer after high school I um I went to this outpatient rehab in New York called the Phoenix House. And I can't imagine a more useless place than that. I went there three times a week for about, uh, I don't know, about three months. And they had this group of like 10 or 12 kids. And there were three counselors. And each, each session, the counselors would sit there and just shame and berate whichever kid had gotten caught doing something stupid since the last session. But it was... It was worthless and I, I was generally able to avoid their ire. Like I knew when they would, uh, when they would piss test me and I could talk circles around them. I, st- I still remember when one of the counselors told me that I was a gifted communicator and I don't think I've ever felt so flattered by a compliment, but I, I was the kind of addict who thought that I could intellectualize everything. And if I did that, I would be fine, as long as I read the physician's desk reference. it was okay for me to take a handful of xanax and vicodin and and like it was a this mentality of I know better, so I'll be okay," which you know that sort of hubris always leads to some sort of crash and burn inevitably i was um I was working at Bloomberg as an intern that summer uh, I don't think I was particularly useful to them since I was high most of the time, but i I started going to nightclubs. I thought I was like some kind of sophisticated nightlife impresario. I would organize, you know, my friends to go on these big nights out and my my favorite club was Twilo on West 27th Street. They had this huge disco ball in the middle and they would have Paul van Dyke and Sasha and Digweed and all these other famous DJs who would come and perform there and I I'd go out I'd stay out until like nine in the morning. I'd leave the club in broad daylight. To, you know, to an addict, that's that's normal behavior. I thought that was really cool and sophisticated to to go out like that. I think I got sick of trying to outsmart everyone. At some point in in September of that year, September of two thousand, I took one night. I remember I took like a handful of ecstasy and Xanax the night before. I knew I was going to get drug tested. And the next morning, I woke up. I was on the floor of my bathroom. My underpants were sitting next to me. I hadn't made it to the toilet. And my underpants were sitting there with a giant log of feces in them, and I can't think of a more dignified day on which to get sober um i I inevitably failed the drug test I was given that day, and I got sober on on September eighth of two thousand i um I went to the Karen Foundation for the proverbial 28 days. Karen's this amazing rehab in Pennsylvania. And I remember the day I walked in there, uh the group was there. They were having an AA meeting and I'd never been to AA. I didn't know anything about it. And I heard each person going around and introducing themselves. And they would say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. And when it was my turn, I said, my name is Lee and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And I don't think I've ever felt such a sense of things clicking as I did at that moment. I spent the proverbial 28 days at Karen and it changed my life. There were AA meetings twice a day and uh I just I felt like I had so much that I I wanted to get off my chest. And while I was there, my parents went on vacation. My father developed a major blood clot in his leg on the flight you know, the kind that they tell you have to walk around and stretch every hour to prevent. But he, because of the meds he was on, he had a very high risk for these kinds of blood clots and it was painful. He tried to lie down on the floor of the uh, of the plane and to, to stretch his leg, but the flight attendants wouldn't let him do it. And when he, um, when he finally got back to New York, the doctors said that the cancer was spreading and it was wrapped around this blood clot in his leg. So I got out of rehab. And uh, and just two days later, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And both both my parents had surgery on the same day in the same hospital. They shared a hospital room together. So here I was, newly sober, right out of rehab. I'm trying to go to AA meetings. I'm trying to focus on my internship and, and also take care of my parents and spend time with them at the hospital. It was incredibly overwhelming. You know, somehow I did it. Uh through through the grace of God I went to an AA meeting every day. I found this amazing network of sober people in New York. I found young people's meetings. I met pretty girls at AA meetings. I thought it was super cool to flirt with with them at the meetings. But uh side note, it is not cool and I'm now a big believer in going to men's meetings. Um but my my mother recovered. She went into remission. My father never never really did. I mean, he survived the surgery, but he was never really the same and the following summer the summer of 2001 he got even worse the the cancer spread to his colon he had to have a colostomy in July of 2001 and that was really the beginning of the end he died at home on September 8th 2001 and his funeral was September 10th 2001 just pause and reflect on that for a moment those those dates so his funeral was September 10th 2001 and at, at his funeral I remember we got there early and I went into the chapel to be alone with the coffin for a couple minutes. I brought a He-Man toy with me that he had bought me as a kid and I put it in the coffin with him. And I started crying at that moment and the tears just didn't stop. I was sobbing uncontrollably. And after about two minutes, someone walked in to ask if I could allow my other family members to have time with him. And I immediately just like stopped crying swallowed the tears and i really think it's been hard for me to cry ever since then like ever since that moment it's been hard for me to cry um so we had the funeral and then we we brought him you know there's like a motorcade that brought him to uh the the cemetery and he was buried in in New Jersey in Clifton New Jersey uh where a huge number of jews are buried which also randomly is the town where my my father grew up, and in our family, we have this tradition that we bury our own. We don't let the grave diggers do it at the cemetery, uh which it's a ton of work, and especially that day because it had drizzled that morning, so that the dirt was wet, it was heavier than usual. It took us a long time to fill in the grave. Um, all the men there had sore backs from the shoveling, and the the grave is at the top of a Small hill, very small hill, but it has a view of the skyline of Manhattan. And I remember after we filled in the grave, I was talking to my sister and my brother, and I said, "Well, at least he'll always have a view of the Twin Towers." That was September tenth, two thousand one. Of course, the next morning, the world changed Uh, when the first plane struck the North Tower. My mother came and woke me up. I turned on CNN. I was I was horrified. I was I was so upset. And I don't know why, but I felt this strong urge to be there. So I, I got dressed, and along with my brother, we tried to make our way down town on foot. And we walked all the way to Broadway and Canal before we got stopped, and they wouldn't let us go any further south and, and made us turn around. And I didn't realize at the time, I mean, like I just <laughs> I, I grew up like never going below 59th Street. I didn't realize that the towers were so far west and we'd gone too far east to be able to really see anything at that point there were these they had these long line of buses on canal street every kind of bus just trying to get people uptown and away from ground zero we took this department of corrections bus it dropped us at 66th street and park avenue and then we walked the rest of the way home from there and because my father had died at 53 you know he was young so tons of people flew in to come to the funeral right when you're old and you die a lot less people come because half your friends are dead. Um, But uh, he was young and, and none of his friends could fly out. They were all stuck. All the flights were canceled. So our apartment and what was meant to be the Shiva became this like gathering place for everyone who was stuck. But it was weird. It wasn't a real Shiva. It was a big crowd of people just watching the news and speculating about what this would mean for the world. And my my mother's health, you know, she she had had breast cancer. She recovered. Um, I think she felt like she just had to be there for my father. Her health was fine for quite a while. Uh, In 2008, her cancer returned and she was on chemo for, I guess, about seven years. Um, You know, the drugs would work they would reduce the tumor count and then they'd become ineffective and she'd switch to a new and a stronger treatment. Um, she was, <laughs> This is kind of funny. She was adamant that she didn't ever want to be in like a vegetative state. So she had this living will that specified that doctors should not take any measures to resuscitate her. And in December of 2014, she was still in pretty good health, but she got very dehydrated and I think she fainted and went to the hospital. And she was, you know, when she got to the hospital, she was conscious, she was alert and and very dehydrated. But the doctors refused to hook her up to an IV to give her fluids because they said that would be considered resuscitation. And it was like this episode of The Twilight Zone. My mother is sitting there going, no, 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 like tear up the living will if you have to, but give me the fluids. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, give, give her the fluids. And the doctors were refusing to do it. And I had to make a huge stink and the doctors sat there and they 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 discussed it for twenty minutes before they finally agreed this you know meeting of the minds and they finally agreed to do it. But on on August fifth of twenty fifteen, my mother couldn't fight anymore and she died. She was uh, seventy years old. And you know after she died, I didn't want a long shiva. My experience had had been the shiva for my father, and and I thought it was always going to be that. So we we agreed to do four days. But you know, it turned out to be something totally different. It was healing and beautiful and cathartic, and it, it felt good. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm so extroverted that uh, I draw energy from having a crowd around me and, and just having all these people there. Maybe there were just so many funny stories about my mother for everybody to recount, but I just found myself wishing that the Shiva had been even longer. And you know, the next major project was cleaning out her apartment. I talked recently about the building that she lived in. And, and this apartment, it, it like meant the world to her. So to sell it, we had to clean it. And that's when I realized that my mother was a hoarder. She had a large enough apartment that it was never truly apparent. But it was, it was like a smidge away from one of those TV shows about hoarding, where they show the stacks of stuff like up to the ceiling. My mother, here, here's an example. My mother had a large drawer right next to a Central Park facing window that was full of yarmulkes, like a thousand, literally over a thousand yarmulkes. She'd save them from every bar mitzvah and wedding that she'd been to over the years. But why? Who needs that many yarmulkes? She had boxes full of checking account statements going back to the 1980s, like 35 years of checking account statements. But for Why? It, it took me about nine months working close to full time to fully empty her apartment. Uh, you know, we sold off what we could. Wasn't much, unfortunately, that was worth selling. And when I finally started to work on her closet, that was like the last, the last thing that I left. Uh, I found on a very high shelf, there was this huge suitcase and I tried to move it. But it would not budge. So finally, with a ladder and some extra hands, I was able to get the, the suitcase down from the shelf. It weighed a ton. I don't I don't even know how the shelf was strong enough to support it. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is the gold bars. This is the the something valuable. I opened the suitcase, it was filled to the brim with hotel shampoo bottles. You know, those little mini ones that they give you for free. In your room, hundreds of them. My mother had saved hundreds and hundreds of them over the years in this giant suitcase. None of them were usable. They were old and separated and gross. To my knowledge, she had never used any of them. They just sat there. The next, we, we, we found next to it another suitcase on the same shelf, also very heavy. I opened it up. What was it filled with? Promotional tote bags from conferences that my mother had attended over the years. Like, why did she save this crap? I think a lot of my my friends a lot of a lot of listeners to the show are going to go through something similar if they haven't already you know we're we're getting to the age where our parents are starting to have diseases and die, and it's sad. I went through it younger than most i I don't know why I always have to be precocious I don't like it, but um you know a lot a lot of us are going to go through it now a uh, British court ruled this week that Julian Assange should be extradited to the u s To stand trial for espionage charges. And I can't think of a more trumped-up bullshit prosecution than this one. I mean, it, it really it makes my blood boil thinking about it. Julian Assange, if you don't know, is the founder of WikiLeaks. He's an Australian national, and he created this website where people could dump huge data sets that were otherwise secret or confidential, and he would expose them to the world. And and the site became prominent in 2010 when Chelsea Manning, who was a, a private in, in the U.S. Army, exposed a cache of about a million documents. And among those documents were concrete proof of some terrible illegal activity by the U.S. government. One example was proof that US soldiers uh, in a helicopter murdered 18 Iraqi civilians they they mowed them down with machine gun fire and that the US government covered it up i mean there was just reams of absolutely awful stuff and and war crimes that Assange exposed and sure some of it was embarrassing for our government but like so what you know when our leaders do bad stuff it's the the job of journalists to expose it and to hold them to account that's literally what they do right when Bob Woodward exposed the watergate scandal was it somehow inappropriate for him to do it he exposed that our leaders were up to no good I- i'm grateful that 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 he did it i think there's a a parallel to edward snowden another brave and heroic person uh these these are true whistleblowers these are the kinds of whistleblowers who put their lives and their freedom in jeopardy to expose wrongdoing at the highest levels Remember, Edward Snowden exposed that the NSA was using illegal wiretapping methods to spy on millions of American citizens, and that the leaders of the NSA were intentionally going in front of Congress and lying about this. Think about how much courage it takes to do that. I think that's part of why I found it so offensive when that Whistleblower label was applied to that bozo at Facebook earlier this year. I mean, she wasn't exposing some nefarious wrongdoing. She didn't expose anything. She was trying to accumulate power and influence for herself and nothing more. I mean, what a farce. So Julian Assange in 2012, I think, was given refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And he lived there. He was trapped in a small apartment there for seven years. He was hounded by the US government. But Ecuador at the time had a very strong president who stood up for Assange and gave him refuge there. But when he left office and a new president uh, of Ecuador took over in 2019, this guy was a total pushover. And he turned Assange over to the British government. And they imprisoned him in pretty brutal conditions for the past Two years as he was fighting his extradition to the U.S., and, and finally this week, the court ruled that he could be sent to the U.S. to stand trial. And when Assange and WikiLeaks published the the leak from uh, from Manning, he was he was vilified by the U.S. government. They said he was a criminal, but isn't that exactly what the freedom of the press is for? Are you a criminal just because you expose? something that the government wants to keep secret? Like, how about they just don't do illegal stuff? How about they secure their data better? The government said he's, quote, not a real journalist. That tactic of determining who is and isn't a journalist, it's been used repeatedly. Senator Dianne Feinstein from California, she wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal that said, quote, Mr. Assange claims to be a journalist and would no doubt rely on the First Amendment to defend his actions. Yet he is no journalist. He is an agitator intent on damaging our government whose policies he happens to disagree with, regardless of who gets hurt. They use the, the same tactic against Glenn Greenwald, who's another hero with the reporting that he did in 2013 about Edward Snowden. The, this idea that a politician, that any one person can just appoint themselves as the one who decides who is and is not a real journalist, who is and is not worthy of First Amendment protection. That's insane. That's what tyrants and dictators try to do. And the rights under the constitution, they don't just apply to you if you work for the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. They apply to anyone. You don't need some credential that says you're a journalist. The entire purpose of these rights is that they apply to all citizens. I mean, arguably, Julian Assange broke more major stories than just about every other living journalist combined. So what does it take to be a real journalist if not that? Assange was still supported by folks in the journalism industry for a while, but the next major leak that WikiLeaks did was the one that that seems to have cost him a lot of his support, which was in, in March of 2016 the Gmail account of John Podesta, who at the time was the the chair of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. He was the former White House chief of staff. He was this prominent Democratic operative. And his his email account, his Gmail was hacked. And the entire trove of emails, which is about 20,000 of them, was published in a searchable database by WikiLeaks. And these emails had major news value. For example, they showed that CNN had shared questions with the Clinton campaign in advance of events like the town halls and debates. How fucking corrupt is that? That they showed that there was this widespread corruption at the Democratic National Committee. They showed that that the, the DNC had helped Clinton cheat to fend off a primary challenge from Bernie Sanders because they didn't want Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic candidate. Do you know how how horrible this is to undermine the will of the American people and the the ability of the American people to choose their leader? I mean, this was a major story, but yet somehow the Democratic machine believes that it was these emails that sank the Hillary campaign. You know, Freddie DeBoer wrote a piece about this. He said, um, I'm going to read a quote from him, the 2016 election. That is where one of the most unpopular figures in American politics was somehow treated as the inevitable and rightful candidate, where her rival in the primary and his followers were smeared as racist and sexist simply for opposing her. Remember that, by the way, Bernie bros, where the nominee presided over a campaign built on celebrity glitz and glamour while the country quietly throbbed with resentment towards elites, where she based her campaign in Brooklyn, not just geographically, but philosophically, where she barely campaigned in Michigan and Wisconsin, where she never missed an opportunity to look like the clueless wealthy insider she plainly was. That's a great description of the the, the Clinton campaign. But yet, she can only blame Assange, blame those outside of her. She ran a shitty campaign, and so now the Democratic machine blames her her, her loss on Julian Assange, and they're thirsty for revenge there there there's this hunger to put him in prison right remember this is the same party that's so adamant supposedly about criminal justice reform but those criminal justice reforms i guess they only apply if they agree with you right otherwise they want to throw you in prison and 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 hide the key glenn greenwald put it well he had he had a great quote about this he said The most protracted thirst for harsh criminal punishment from Democrats has been directed at those who participated in the protest-turned-riot at the Capitol on January 6th. Of the more than 600 people charged with crimes in connection with that riot, only a minority are accused of using violence of any kind. In other words, the majority of 1-6 defendants are accused of nonviolent crimes. While few object to prison terms for people who used violence as part of that riot, even though many progressives do object to long prison terms for those who used violence as part of the 2020 protest movement after George, George Floyd was killed, a large number of nonviolent protesters face serious felony charges and lengthy prison terms. That nonviolent protesters should be imprisoned is foundational to the criminal justice reform movement, yet it is nowhere to be found when it comes to the six defendants whose real crime, again, is that they have the wrong ideology. I mean think about that for a second this idea that if you were on the right side of the protest if you were marching in the streets and looting after George Floyd was killed you don't deserve to go to prison but if you stormed the capitol on january 6th even if you didn't use violence that you do deserve a long prison sentence is that hypocrisy or what our government media complex has has gotten these these types of things wrong so often that it's laughable. The way that they brand some a hero and some a villain. I mean, think about the the past four years. All of these, these outlets, all of these content companies spilled so much ink talking about Russian collusion and the stolen election. And then, of course, four years later, they reversed course. The moment it was convenient, the moment Trump called it a stolen election, they laughed at him. The reality is that both of these stories were garbage. Neither election was stolen. These were just politicians who were upset that they lost. Clinton in 2016 and Trump in 2020, they were just upset that they lost. But this entire Russian collusion story, it was completely made up. And these corporate media companies have lost so much market share to social media that they've turned their attention now to, quote, combating disinformation by proclaiming themselves to be like the last line of defense against it. But this cause is, is, it's a total joke. They want control. They want power over speech and thought. They want to diminish the importance of the competition. There's no way that the Washington Post should have the power to decide what is disinformation and what is somehow off limits. Neither should Facebook or Twitter or anyone else. And remember, the the, the worst disinformation, it's not coming from your dingbat aunt on Facebook talking about microchips and the vaccine. No one listens to her. It doesn't mean she can't spread it, but it doesn't matter. It is far more destructive when these corporate content companies try to censor what can and can't be said on the internet. They get it wrong over and over. And these outlets are the same ones that spent the last five years flooding us with their own disinformation this crazy theory that somehow the Kremlin is taking over the US and, and the peepee tapes and the steel dossier, it was all a sham. But you know, it's, it's very easy to fall into this trap when your only value is what is politically expedient. When the decision about who is and isn't a journalist comes down to the question of do I like his politics and do I agree with him, then you're going to end up with horrible and unjust decisions. Like the whole point of these protections is that they are universal. They don't only apply if Dianne Feinstein wants you on her team. Think back to the, the Skokie case in 1977. That was when a, a neo Nazi group held rallies in Skokie, Illinois, and the ACLU defended the right of these people to march, no matter whether they disagreed with them. And the Supreme Court agreed. It's one of the most important freedom of speech decisions in American history. If you're not familiar with the case, I strongly recommend at least just go read the Wikipedia article about it. The ACLU defended them not because they agreed, but because they had principles. They had values. The ACLU knew that once you allow the government to run roughshod roughshod over these principles of those you disagree with, they will run over yours next. Now, the ACLU happens to have gone off the deep end in the last uh, couple of years, but we could talk about that another time. But our elected leaders, they don't have principles. They don't have the values that allow for the defense of someone like Julian Assange or Edward Snowden, because they're political enemies. And if you don't have a consistent set of principles and values, then all it comes down to is a matter of convenience. And in these cases, it's convenient to them to lock him up and throw away the key. Remember also, there is a major distinction between defending someone's right to express an opinion and agreeing with that opinion. They're very different things. Regardless of whether you like the outcome of Assange's work, he must be set free and be allowed to continue that important work. Thank you for joining me today. Remember that I write, I record these podcasts to share a point of view that you won't find elsewhere in the media, and uh, I depend on your support. So please Sign up as a paid subscriber, leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, with your colleagues. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram, and I will be back with more soon.